So, we are in Leviticus chapter 20. I've been chugging along. We're going to probably finish the book because there's not very many more chapters, guys. There's only seven more after this one. So we're probably going to finish it by the end of the summer and then in the fall, going into Numbers, which is <laughs> one of my favorite books to teach because it's a lot cooler than I ever realized before I started teaching it. And a lot more happens in it than I realized before I started teaching it. <clears throat> but we're not there yet. We're in Leviticus. We're still at the thick of it. Uh, Leviticus 20 was set the stage. If you weren't with us, <clears throat> this is your first time here. Uh, for sure, welcome, and we're glad you're here. We do this every week. We record it, put it on the Disciple Dojo channel on YouTube, SoundCloud, and iTunes so that people can follow along with each week because we build off of what's come before. And we've been doing it for three and a half years, three years, three and a half years, somewhere around there. We started back in Genesis. We traced the overall arc of the biblical story, the biblical narrative, how it goes. <clears throat> we've, we've emphasized some important things. One, chapters and verses were not in the text originally. They are not to be considered how you study the Bible. We only do chapter by chapter because for us it's a convenient way to mark where we are. But the text was given as a whole, not in chapters, not in verses. Second thing we emphasize is that the whole Bible tells one big meta-narrative. A meta-narrative is an overriding story. So the Bible is a library, not a book, and it's made up of many different books, many different stories, many different characters. But all of those are woven into one overall narrative that most people, including people in churches, simply have no idea of because it's not taught that way. It's taught, here's a verse, here's a rule, here's a saying for the day, here's a thought, now go be a Christian. And instead, the ancient Hebrews and the first century Christians, they didn't teach it that way. They taught, here's God's story. Here's what humanity was created to be. Here's where we are in the drama of what God's trying to do in the world which is to redeem and restore the world. Because you don't have to be a Christian to see that things today, in every culture, in every place, and every time, in some way are not the way they should be. And we're reminded of it every time we pass through a cemetery. We're reminded of it every time we turn on the news. We're reminded of it every time we wake up with a new ache or a new creak or a new soreness or uh, any kind of medical stuff. We're, we're constantly reminded that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. We, we all intuitively know this, and the different world religions, the different beliefs, the philosophies have all tried to grasp at and figure out what can we do about it or what explains it, uh, how can we account for this. And so the biblical story presents it as, well, the reason is because very, very early in human history, humanity and God parted ways in, in some way. There was a parting, there was a, a, a turning away from God. <clears throat> and a separation developed. And in the biblical account, we see that in Genesis chapter 3 up to Genesis chapter 12. And 3 through 12 chronicles that downward spiral of creation. So one of the things that all throughout the Bible, people, uh, the authors of Scripture note is one of the chief ways, one of the main ways that people express or, or give evidence to this separation, this turning away from God, is through the concept of idolatry. And we've looked at idolatry over the past few weeks as we've gone through the holiness code in Leviticus because the holiness code specifically was given to Israel. This section of Leviticus was specifically given to them to say, look, I am sending you into this, into this context and there are going to be peoples around you, Egypt, uh, people in the Middle East, Canaanites, all over. There are going to be people around you and I'm sending you into the midst of them 
not to completely wipe them out and destroy them, although there will be particular groups or city-states to whom God does give that command. And we'll deal with that when we get to Numbers and Deuteronomy because that raises its own set of questions and challenges for us today. But in particular, I'm calling you to be among these nations because God's design is that the nations, his design at this point, second millennium BC, is that the nations will see the offspring of Abraham, the seed of Abraham. We've talked about that term forever. And they'll see that God is, that these people, the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, they have this unique or weird take on God. And, they, and they're different from the other peoples. And that's the key in Leviticus is differentiation. There's such an emphasis in the book on differentiating, differentiating things, not mixing or blending things. And it comes out in somewhat mundane aspects of even their agricultural life, like not mixing two types of seeds in the same field, not mixing two types of threads in the same garment. Why? Again, does God hate cotton polyester blends? No, but God had a purpose for Israel, and part of that purpose was you will be distinct even down to the way you dress, even down to the way you groom yourselves. So even things like we looked at last week, like how you trim your beard and your hair, things, garments that you wear for Israel, and this is the key, it was for Israel. The holiness code was for Israel. The holiness code was not given to Egypt. The holiness code was not given to the Canaanites. The holiness code was not given to the Babylonians. It was given to Israel for their living in the land of Israel, the land known as Canaan. And the purpose God said in chapter 18 was the reason that I'm sending you in and, and that I am driving out these particular seven to ten people groups, these particular people, not just anybody who's not a Jew. It's not case. It was particular people. The reason I'm, I'm actually dispossessing them from their land is because of the practices they, they have committed and been committing for 400 years, ever since God called Abraham, way back Genesis 15. You can go check the video, check the podcast on that lesson, but from Genesis 15 on, God had set a countdown clock for these particular people groups known as the Canaanites, and had given them 400 years to turn from what they were doing and to repent and to not do the things that they were doing that characterized their culture. And the chief thing among them was their idolatry. And their idolatry was manifested primarily in their worship and in their sexual practices, and particularly in the intertwining of the two. Sexuality, we've looked at chapter 18 where the commands are, this is what you're not going to do. And it's all these commands of things that, that even today we find abhorrent, like incest, like marrying a woman and her daughter. Like, you don't need to have a Bible to know, that's, ew. Like, uh -uh, we don't do that. There's something within us. But then even less uh, universally maligned practices, God also said you're not going to do. Like, approaching, going into your wife when she's having her period and, and, and doesn't want to deal with sex, doesn't want to have your advances, needs time to be set apart. And, and in the ancient Near East cultures, it was like, no, you, you're the property. You're, you, the husband wants it, you provide it, end of story. And in scripture, we saw how built into that was a period of like God saying, no, you're not going to do that with your wives. And so there were practices that God put in place that he was telling Israel, this will not characterize you. As a society, this is not to characterize you. This is what the Egyptians and the Canaanites in particular were doing. And because of what they were doing, you have seen what I've done with them. So if you go and follow the same practices as a nation, 
then your fate as a nation will be the same as theirs. So God was very impartial. in He's very stern, but he's very impartial in his sternness. Chapter 20 is the most difficult chapter in Leviticus to teach, I think. It's the chapter that I have not looked forward to teaching. I don't mind coming in. We've, we've talked about all kinds of stuff in here. We've done the bodily fluids chapter. We've done the menstruation and the cleanliness chapters. We've done the meats and animals and all that kind of stuff. That stuff's I don't mind talking about. But the reason that this is a hard chapter to teach, <clears throat> because it, it is a number of issues come together in this chapter that the New Testament informs and that the New Testament brings to a completion and then transforms into a new mode of interpretation. That one sentence could take three weeks to unpack, uh, and we don't have that. What I do want to do is I want to make a reference to a book that are two works that I think are crucial for understanding what we're just going to touch on for 20 minutes, because that's all we have. Um, the first one is shamelessly self-promoting, but Bible for the rest of us, the DVD course that I teach. We spend a whole section, multiple 30-minute sessions, dealing with this concept of interpreting Old Testament law, interpreting the Old Testament story, what does it mean for us that aren't Old Testament people today, how do we are separated in time, language, culture, everything. So what does it mean? How do we read it? So there's, there's a whole session for those of you that are audiovisual learners. Um, grab a copy of the DVD if you already have it. But the other one, and this is not my work, this is um, a book by Christopher Wright. Christopher Wright is Christopher J.H. Wright, or Chris as he likes to be called is my favorite living scholar. I've mentioned him before in here. When I was preparing to teach this chapter last Thursday, I shot him an email, just a Hail Mary, and said, hey, we met briefly in Bethlehem two years ago. Uh, I've read all of your work, I appreciate blah, blah, blah. Um, I gotta teach Leviticus 20 this week, and I would love to hear if you have any thoughts or recommendations, because here's why this is a hard chapter for me. Didn't expect to hear back from him, because he's in England, and it's holiday weekend, not for them, obviously. But uh, they lost. <laughs> but uh, but I, the next morning, I opened up my inbox, and there was a whole like two-page-long email that he had written me that had his thoughts, and he attached two articles, and it was really good. Um, one of his works that's pretty indispensable for this topic is called Old Testament Ethics for the People of God. He's an Old Testament scholar. He specializes in Torah. He's written amazing commentaries on Torah and the prophets, but his specialty emphasis has been Okay, so New Testament believers, what do we do with this Old Testament stuff? What do we do with things like death penalty? What do we do with things like sexual practices and morality? What do we do with those troubling passages where God seems to be commanding what we would call genocide? What do we do with that? Because nobody's comfortable with it. And so he goes through, and it's, it's fantastic. It's probably one of the best books. It is the best book on this subject I've ever read. Uh, so I want to recommend that, and I wanted that to be on camera so people following along. Christopher J.H. Wright. Old Testament ethics for the people of God. Let me walk us through Leviticus 20. Right off the bat, there's going to be some things in the chapter that you're like, amen. And there's going to be things in the chapter you're like, oh, <laughs> I, that doesn't sit well with me. So we're going to read it, and I'm going to just try to untangle some of the stuff as we go. And then hopefully if we have time, we may spill into next week. I don't mind spending two weeks on this chapter. But we may spill into next week in terms of, okay, so what does this mean today? Chapter 20 starts off... <clears throat> said, the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, any Israelite or any immigrant living in Israel who gives any of his children to Moloch must be put to death. The people of the community are to stone him. I will set my face against that man and I will cut him off from his people. For by giving his children to Moloch, 
He has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. If the people of the community close their eyes when that man gives his children to Moloch and they fail to put him to death, I will set my face against that man and his family and will cut off from the people, both him and all who follow him, in prostituting themselves to Moloch. And I will set my face against the person who turns to mediums and spiritists to prostitute himself by following them. I will cut him off from his people. Now, right off the bat, this is, introduces the first in this section, capital punishment. What is giving your children to Moloch? Okay, Moloch was an ancient Near East deity. Then the letters from his name, M-L-K, are the same letters for the word king. His name originally was probably Melek or Malik. And the Hebrews substituted, likely substituted vowels from the word Bosheth, which means shameful, into those consonants to create this word that they would use to describe that detestable thing, Moloch. That shameful deity. Now, what's the big deal? Well, God didn't command death penalty willy-nilly. In fact, there are very few things that receive the death penalty in the Old Testament. Uh, one of the urban legends that Christians have believed is that, oh, you break any law, they stone you. No, no, no. Stoning was very specific for very specific things that involved idolatry or family uh, disturbance. Moloch was an ancient Near East deity in the area of Phoenicia, from what we know. Worship of Moloch was uh, chiefly categorized with child sacrifice. So you want to appease the god. Moloch was seen as one of the gods of the underworld. He was the king of the realm of the dead or, or the king of the, the nether regions or the earth or whatever. If you wanted to appease the god of the storm, which was either Baal or Asherah, his consort, then you would entice Baal or Asherah to bless your land. And you would do that, as we've seen in previous weeks, through all types of sexual practices in order to get the gods fired up and excited. It was like people were the pornography of the gods in, their, in these high places. So you want to get Baal to get excited and to get it on in the heavens so that he sends down his seed, which is the rain, and it penetrates the ground, which is the womb of Asherah? Then you commit sex acts in his presence with a sacred prostitute known as a Kedashim, and that will get him fired up. That will generate the rains. That will bless your crops. That will bless your herd, blah, 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 blah. So sex became, rather than what we see in Genesis, what it was created to be, it became a commodity by which you get things that you want. So it was very intimately wedded with idolatry. Well, Moloch was a little bit different. Moloch was not fired up by sexuality, necessarily. Moloch was more fired up by life, and particularly by the taking of life, from what it seems. So one of the ways that it's known that Moloch was worshipped was a statue or, or an idol of some type um, some have talked about inscriptions and archaeological finds where there was a cast iron kind of creature and it had hands like this and its mouth was open and it was hollow and you would, the fire would be built inside this bronze or metal statue and the fire would burn in the mouth there and then the high priest would place one of the newborn children onto the hands as a sacrificial giving of the child and then push it into the fire. And so you would have people offering newborn babies to this god Moloch to try to get their blessing on their society. If that is not evil and deserving of death penalty, nothing is. Pushing a live newborn baby into a burning fire, everyone agrees, even if you're anti-death penalty, if something deserves the death penalty, it should be that. God was not just saying, don't worship other gods because I'm jealous and don't like it. 
he was saying in particular, and starting this chapter off with, do not give your, and literally it's do not give your seed to Moloch. That's what it was considered as, giving the seed. The thing that was God was going to bless, the seed, they would give that to this demonic entity that they had either created or had come into the spiritual contact with somehow through these mediums and spiritists or whatever. And that was seen as that's how you would get blessing for your family, for your clan, for your tribe, for your people. So that's the kind, when people think about, why is God so angry in the Old Testament? Why is he so mean? Well, God does not like when you burn babies a lot. That should just go without saying. There's a reason why God judged some things as so heinous. And in this chapter, the practices that he's describing, and the sexual practices in particular, are all in some way connected to that society, that culture of idolatry mixed with sexuality, mixed with child sacrifice, mixed with, and all of these laws together are what, what God's giving his people to characterize how they're going to be different. So then he moves on from things about, uh, for that first prohibition, right off the bat. And we know from Jeremiah that Israel didn't listen to this. I mean, they did worship Moloch. They did burn their babies alive to appease this God that wasn't even their God, their covenant God. And that's why God sent them into exile. He said, you do these practices that the Canaanites were doing, the land will vomit you out. Use that phrase, vomit out, just like it vomited out the Canaanites who you displaced. So don't think I'm just a God who shows favoritism to you because you're Abraham's seed. If you're Abraham's seed, but you act like the seed of Moloch and his minions, then you'll experience the same fate. And Israel did in 587 B.C. But we go on, it says, um, <clears throat> verse 7, it says, Consecrate yourselves, be holy, because I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees, follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. And every time it's the Lord, that's his covenant name, Yahweh. I am Yahweh. I am that I am. I am. So we talked about last week, ethics in the Old Testament are not based on pragmatism. They're not based on health concerns. They're not based on cultural norms more than anything else, although they may all take all those into account more than anything else. They are based on the very character and nature of God himself. His, his essence is what is to be reflected in the totality of his people. And in Old Testament, Old Covenant Israel, it comes in being distinguished from the Canaanites and the Egyptians and those who practice these type of things that he lists. So then he goes on to say, second uh, major command he gives, verse 9, if anyone curses his father or his mother, he must be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother, and his blood will be on his own head. So now people have looked at this, and especially skeptics and, and people who say, who, who go through and try to pick apart the Bible. And this is an easy one to find on a Google search and pull it up and go, oh, so my kid cusses me out, and I'm supposed to take him out and kill him, put him to death. First of all, this does not say a kid. This says his blood will be on his own hand. If any man, the, for, literally, it's, it's if, if any man does this. This is talking about adult children. This is not talking about kids. It's not talking about temper tantrum. Secondly, cursing. It's not talking about profanity, although profanity is a form of cursing. This is talking about cursing. In the world of ancient Near East in the second millennium, words were seen as speech acts that had power to bring about certain realities. So you wanted to bless your child and give them the inheritance? You made a blessing. You spoke a blessing. We saw this with Jacob and his 12 children and he, how he spoke a blessing at the end of the Genesis or spoke a, a, a prophecy at the end of Genesis over each of his children. Speaking something was a definitive act. It wasn't just <clears throat> empty words. So cursing your parents, cursing someone was calling into account 
the deity in order to get the deity to act against and to injure or to harm or to kill the person who is on the receiving end of the curse. That's what cursing was. It was beyond bad language. It was like an attack on a person, and it was an attack on their integrity and their center of being. It was an attack on the honor. See, we, we live in an individualized Western culture. We don't have the same honor and shame culture that is present in many places throughout the world, where the identity, your, your, your family identity, your family name, your family honor is more important than any individual in that family. So the most blasphemous or, or hateful thing you could do to someone in this context would be to call down a curse on them and to do it on your parents, your mother and your father. They, in the Covenant Holiness Code, they represented, not represented God because they have more power and what you, you do what they say. No, they represented God because they, they were to be to the child and as the child matured into an adult, what God was for his people, which is a, a father, a guide, a shepherd, a protector, all of those things. And so for, for an adult child to then do that, to the curses were public too. They weren't done under your breath. They weren't done in the dark. They were a public declaration. This was, this is a very, we don't have a parallel to this. That's why it's hard to understand today. And that's why it gets misinterpreted by people looking to um, just show how, you know, superstitious and medieval the Bible was. But it's a very specific act of not just disobedience, but dishonor in an honor and shame culture. And so the penalty for it was capital punishment because it was seen as a capital crime. And there, there's only like seven things that are capital punishment in, in the Old Testament. And so the first one that started off is burning your children in the Moloch's uh, idol worship. The second one is cursing, not cussing at, cursing <laughs> your father and mother. <clears throat> then it moves on uh, to the next one. It says... Verse 10, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. If a man sleeps with his father's wife, he has dishonored his father. Both the man and the woman must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now, the rest of these are also dealing with incestuous uh, same-sex or human-animal relationships. And, and so God's going to deal with those all in this section among Israel. And they were all intertwined with this culture of idolatry. So that in and of itself is something that we have to separate. We have to distance ourselves from first in order before uh, people start doing what people like to do. This, the, we don't have enough time to finish, so we are going to discuss this um, the next time I'm here. But this particular section really has been on my heart since the Orlando shooting. The Orlando shooting, a guy went into the Pulse gay nightclub and just shot all these people. And people are like, oh, I did it because he pledged allegiance to ISIS. All he did was say, I'm doing this for ISIS, but ISIS is like, who is this guy? So, um, he, I mean, thanks, but who are you, kind of thing. Uh, so he did that. But the backlash from that immediately was against Christians in a lot of ways. And the counter to it was this nut job who has a YouTube channel and calls himself a pastor. I think his church has like maybe half a dozen people um, who's preached ridiculous sermons. I've used his sermons as an example of how not to preach before a blog post. Um, could not be more could not be more unqualified to be a pastor. 
regardless, anybody with a YouTube channel and you know access to media can be heard in our culture. So it picked it up. He got on saying, you know, the only thing I regret about it is that they didn't kill more, and, and there's there's 50 less pedophiles in the world now, and they deserve to die, but it shouldn't have been like that. They should have been brought to court like the Bible says, and stoned to death like the Bible says. And he kept just it like the Bible says, and it was just this hateful, hateful message of hate. I mean, some things are called hate that aren't hate. This was legitimately hate. And so as a Christian and as an evangelical and as a Bible teacher, it was incredibly disturbing. One, because I have gay friends who I really love and care about. Um, two, because I, I do still hold to what the Bible says about how God views same-sex relationships as being incompatible with his design for sex. But that guy saying that, how many... It's like he immediately jumped to Leviticus 20 in the section condemning homosexual behavior. But this, this section does not start with a condemnation of homosexual behavior. It starts with a condemnation of adultery. And I don't see any Christians rallying for people to go shoot adulterers. But if you're going to be consistent in your ignorance, then you should do that. We talked about last week, you know, people saying you shouldn't get tattoos, and they, they're clean shaven. And the verse right before, don't get a tattoo, says don't shave your beard. So they're being inconsistent. Well, it's the same thing. If you're going to condemn to death people for same-sex relationships, you've got to be consistent and condemn the adulterers first, because that's the head of the list. How many preachers are adulterers? How many televangelists have been brought down by adultery? How many presidents have been brought down by so, I don't know of anyone suggesting death penalty for adultery today, but yet they won't bat an eye when somebody suggests death penalty for sexual sins that they don't approve of. And that's the rub. When, when Christians start to preach from Leviticus on these things, they, we have to see the context. Remember that meta-narrative I mentioned? Well, in the meta-narrative, there's what's called the redemptive trajectory of Scripture. And Scripture starts in a culture... And then it takes that culture and God's word takes the ethics of that culture and has this trajectory that it's redeeming them and bringing them up to speed with what God ideally wants to be the reality. And the reality is that God says over and over in the prophets, do I desire the death of the wicked? No, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Rather, I want them to turn so that they may live. And even when death penalty was introduced back in Genesis, God said, this is so that... People will not take life. In other words, you take life, you forfeited your own. You commit certain grave sins, you forfeited your own. It's, it was meant to be a deterrent, not a revenge thing. But more than that, and this is where we'll end today, the New Testament, you, two examples from the New Testament jump right out, or should jump right out, as soon as we read this section. Because in John 8, Jesus has an encounter with a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus' response in that story, in that account, shows how the gospel has transformed the Old Testament requirement for law, what should happen according to the letter of the law. And in that encounter, it's very famous, everybody knows it. Jesus, they say, what should we do? Should we? The law says we should kill this person, and that's a kangaroo court. The law says both people should be put to death. So Jesus is already thinking, well, if you're serious about this, where's the dude? Because he's just as guilty. And so he just completely sidestepped in that encounter in John 8, and he says, first one of you without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. 
In other words, he doesn't negate the law as it was intended or what it was intended for. But Jesus knows in this encounter, he has come to complete the law, bring it to its fulfillment, and then inaugurate the new covenant. And in the new covenant, unlike Israel, Israel was a theocracy. God was the ruler of that nation, and it was geographically defined and ethnically defined. And in the new covenant, those boundaries have been done away with. Israel has opened then through Jesus to people from all tribes, all languages, all nations. So that's why things like those food law divisions are now done away with in the new covenant. Because those were symbolic of the division between Israel and all the other peoples of the earth. And then now in Jesus we see those have been done away with because they brought to their conclusion. And he then has inaugurated the new covenant where there is not that division between Jew and Gentile. So the need for sacrificial food laws... Uh, and things you should keep kosher about is no longer needed within the kingdom of God. Well, with the death penalty, we see that in punishment for sexual sins. We see the same kind of thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The very next verse that says, if a man sleeps with his father's wife, he has dishonored his father. Both the man and the woman must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. 1 Corinthians 5, there is a case of a man who has taken his father's wife. And Paul flat out is talking to a people, a church, where one of the members is having sexual relations with his father's wife. And what does Paul command in that passage? 1 Corinthians 5, you can go read it and study it this week. He doesn't command them to be killed. So if he was still operating from a rigid reading of this law as if it were still in effect, he would say, okay, well, they should be. No, he says, they should be expelled from your community. They should be denied taking communion. They should, in other words, their behavior is behavior that characterizes the world, not the people of God. So turn them over to the world. You maintain your status as people of God. You maintain your focus on God. And hopefully, and he finishes it by saying, and hopefully they will be drawn back to you through repentance. Hopefully they will see, if I'm going to continue in this sexual relationship, then that means that I have forfeited this spiritual relationship that I had with this people and their God. I don't want to do that. I actually, it's not worth it and, and be drawn back into repentance. And that's the idea of church discipline was always for the purpose of repenting. Because at the end of the day, despite, and we're, sorry, we're three minutes over, but at the end of the day, despite the strong language and the, 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 the harshness of Leviticus 20, the purpose of God in the big picture is to redeem people and restore their relationship to him, not to punish and cast into hell and wipe his hands and say good riddance which is the attitude of too many Christians like that knucklehead on YouTube that calls himself a pastor. So, we're over time. Um, come back next, uh, actually no, sorry. In two weeks we'll pick it up. Next week, uh, a friend of mine, a colleague, Shannon Schauber, he and I went to college together and he now serves as a discipleship director uh, at my church. He will be coming to do a lesson next week. I will be teaching the refugee kids that I work with, we're going to do a summer day camp. So I'll be doing jiu-jitsu with a bunch of kids that don't know what jiu-jitsu is. So that should be fun. Pray for me in that regard. Um, but ne So next week, Shannon's coming. Shannon's an awesome guy, and uh, you guys are going to look forward to meeting him. Um, so for sure, come back for that. And then in two weeks, we'll be back, and we'll finish out Leviticus 20. But really let it unsettle you. Like, let Leviticus 20. Read it, and read it, and let it go, oh, I don't like that. Because as New Covenant believers, there, there are things we look back to the Old Covenant and we go, I'm glad that's not the case anymore. And this is one of those things. So, 
We gotta go five minutes over. This is unheard of in the history of our Bible study. <laughs> we usually end right on the dot. Have a great, well, yeah, it's birthday, so have a great week, everybody.